Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you gave your apostles grace truly to believe and to preach your word. Grant that we might love what they believed and preach what they taught through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. It is a joy to be with you this morning, to be here at St. John's Church. Um, Beth and I uh, have been here any number of times in the past, um, but this is my first visit Episcopally as, as the bishop, and it's a real joy to be with you this morning. Thanks for welcoming us. Uh, th- there's already been food, and there's going to be food again. Um, one of the occupational hazards of this job is we are very well fed um, when we visit churches. We're just, uh, it's a great joy to be with you. Not long before, actually, I, I was thinking about this morning. I said in the first service, not long before we were married, but this also might have happened just right after we are married. I don't, I'm not sure. But we were driving, Beth and I were driving across Pennsylvania on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Um, we were headed to Ocean City, New Jersey, where she had grown up vacationing as a child. Her family was from Pittsburgh. Ocean City, New Jersey was the beach that they went to in the summer for their vacation. And Beth was sort of training me up into the joys of the Jersey Shore and and going there for vacation. This particular time, driving across the Pennsylvania Turnpike, we had with us a friend. I was involved in campus ministry at the time, and this young guy uh, was a student at Grove City College where I was working. Actually, he had graduated from Grove City. He was now uh, a Ph.D. student at Princeton University where he was studying philosophy with one of the great American Christian philosophers, a man named Diogenes Allen. Um, He was studying with him. He was in the car with us making our way. um, We were actually going to drop him off in Philadelphia. And as we're driving along, we came to a sign that said lane ending. And then a little bit further along, after we'd gone through some construction, there was a sign that said construction ending. And then uh, a little bit further along, there was um, a sign that said speed zone ending. And, and Jeff, sitting in the backseat of the car, said, certainly feels like we're coming to the ending. <laughs> there are certain signs that make you think that you're coming to the end of something or alert you to the fact that you're coming to the end of something. Some of those are not just road signs. They're sort of signs in what is going on in the world around us. And they make us feel like, well, perhaps it's ending. So besides road signs, right, these days it's Russia invading the Ukraine and the threat of that growing out of control. There's trouble in Iran these days. That's causing us some anxiety. North Korea is getting more and more aggressive in their part of the world. Um, and, And all of these things threaten to disrupt and to introduce a time of chaos and and uncertainty and conflict. There's, in our own world, there's political unrest. There's a pandemic that just doesn't seem to want to go away finally. There's racial disquiet and unrest. All around us, things are looking unsettled. I was talking to a friend not long ago. Uh, We were talking particularly about um, a priest in Africa who was trying to get a visa to come to the new wineskins conference that we were hosting a lot of folks in our diocese for. And and he, along with several others, just could not get visa appointments. And and my friend said to me, he said, does it not just feel like the United States is broken these days? It's just things aren't working the way that they're supposed to work. And and I don't know about you, but 
But for most of us, these kinds of things, these uncertainties where we don't expect them, these disruptions where we're not looking for them, the, these, these portents on the horizon make us unsettled and begin to make us ask the question about whether or not maybe we're coming to the end. In addition to that, at the end of each calendar year, in the church calendar, in the liturgical um, year, when we get to this part of the end of the Pentecost or Trinity season, the readings start to begin to turn our attention towards Jesus' teaching about the end of things. And it sets us up for Advent, where we are thinking about both the coming of Jesus into the world in his first incarnation as a baby, but also it invites us to think about Jesus coming into the world for the second time at his as the righteous judge of all things. So the, end, the, the year calendar year ends with inviting us to look up and to think about the future and what's coming, and then the new year begins inviting us to look up and to think about what's coming. And those two things put a lot of questions before us. It makes us wonder, what, what are we supposed to be thinking? And, and one of the questions, particularly the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, reading that we read this morning, one of the questions that it raises is, well, which end of the age are, is Jesus talking about? What, what's being pointed to here? I mean, a lot of what Jesus says in the Gospel portion that we read this morning from Luke 21 feels like he's talking about the end of, the, of, of history. But we also know that just a generation or so after Jesus said these things in Jerusalem to his disciples, um, those same people, the people who were standing there with Jesus that day, would have experienced firsthand the kinds of things that Jesus described when the temple was destroyed by the Romans. And, and when uh, their lives just... Uh, things became chaos and there was persecution and challenge and trouble, um, they would have been hearing the teaching of Jesus as applying to what they went through at that moment. So one of the questions that it raises is, well, which age? What's he pointing to? What's he talking about? It makes us think, well, is he talking to us today about now? Are these portents, these, these unsettling signs that I see in the world around me, are those the ones that Jesus is talking about that make me think that he's returning really soon? Well, as we ask that question, we have to always remember that one of our challenges is that we are the center of our universes. We see the horizon of things from the perspective of ourselves. The whole world revolves around our personal viewpoint. So I always ask these things that are going on in the world around me, that they're unsettling me, that are causing me to wonder, well, what would it have been like for a Tutsi in Rwanda in 1994? Was he thinking or she thinking that all of this unsettling was what Jesus was talking about at the end of the age? Or, or a faithful German follower of Jesus who in the mid-1930s was wondering if the war that was portending for him was the beginning of the end of things. One of the things that I'm pretty confident that Jesus is not talking about in here is is what is often in our imaginations as we think about the end of time, which is the obliteration of everything. Um, and and this, this period of, of horror um, and, and this uh, 
ushering in of some sort of new ethereal realm of existence. You know, the pictures that we have of, of what we call heaven, where you're sitting around on a cloud in a white robe strumming a harp with a halo on your head. That is not the picture that comes to us from the scripture, although there have been uh, teachers of the Bible who have taught that that was what's coming. Rather, the picture in the scriptures is that the renewed earth will be the home of the new heavens, the picture of the, of the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, coming to us. That all things will be made new. That our world will finally be free from the power and the effects of sin. That Jesus will reign over all the world which was created at the beginning of time. So those are the kinds of questions and issues that get raised for us when we hear teachings like this in church on a Sunday morning from Luke chapter 21. What we find in the portion of scripture that we read is Jesus is in, again, in the city of Jerusalem with his disciples and with some others who have been following him. And they're looking at the glorious temple that had been built by Herod. And they're standing there and they're marveling at the glories of this temple. And they're asking questions about, about how wonderful it is, how great it is. Now, I think it's safe for us to sort of ask the question, what are the glorious temples of our life? What, what are the things that we look at and we say, oh, Jesus, this thing, this is really wonderful. This is really great. This is what my heart is set on or fixed on. For them, it was the temple in Jerusalem. For us, often, it's things like wealth and security political um, um, solidity, uh, all kinds of things. Ask for our hearts, and we, we set ourselves on them, and we say, ah, this is the thing in which I put my hope, in which I put my trust. We look around at impressive and strong and glorious things, and we say, oh, if I could just be in touch with that, if that could be a part of who I am, if I could be a part of that bigger, more beautiful thing, but as Jesus is asked that question, he looks around and introduces the teaching that he has on the end of all things. One of the things that Jesus is teaching us is that all of the things that we think are impressive and powerful and beautiful, those things that we're tempted to give our allegiance to, those things that we're tempted to set our hearts and minds on, Jesus says they all go away. Everything falls apart. All idols come crumbling down. Everything will break someday. Jesus says those things that we're tempted to invest our hearts and minds, that we're, to invest, we're tempted to invest our security, that we're tempted to invest our future in, all of those things, Jesus says, are penultimate things. They will not last. The fact of the matter is the gospel is of its very nature iconoclastic, which is to say the God, part of what the good news is, is the breaking down of the idols that demand our allegiance and ask for our allegiance. The things that we're tempted to put our hope and our trust in, the gospel will always take away from us so that our hearts are put fully and finally and firmly just in Jesus. But we don't really want that. We don't want the gospel to disrupt the things that allow our worlds, as, as we're able to control them, to be tidy and neat and beautiful. But the fact of the matter is, we need to be the kind of people who welcome 
the iconoclasm of the gospel. There's a wonderful poem by Robert Browning called Rabbi Ben Ezra. Um, And there's a stanza in that poem in which um, the, the poet says, So welcome each rebuff that makes earth's smoothness rough. Welcome those things that that just when we think we've got it all together and our lives are ordered and neat and beautiful, we have everything where we want it to be, everything is smooth and nice, the advice is welcome those things which come in and disrupt and, and make things uncertain and make us question and make us wonder because it's part of the business of the gospel to disrupt the comfort of our lives so that we don't put our hopes in idols but only in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus, in this teaching, is intent on pushing away from us and pushing us away from everything that keeps us from putting our allegiance fully, our hearts and minds fully on him. Anything that causes us to to bifurcate our worlds into, into the things that give us security and hope and comfort and then those things that we just think about on Sunday mornings but don't really apply, no, he'll have none of that. Anything that calls our allegiance, any portion of it, away from himself towards other things, Jesus says all those things will be torn down. They'll all be broken up. He even warns in this part of Luke chapter 21 that our families can be those sorts of disruptions, those those things that call us away from him. We can put too much emphasis on familial relationships and not on our relationship to Jesus. Even those things, anything, And so Jesus warns about that, and he promises that there is coming a day when all of our other allegiances will finally be cast down. All of our idols will be broken. All of the vagaries of our own hearts will finally be purified, and we will see and think of only him. Have you ever tried to give up a bad habit? Have you you ever tried to just get get rid of one thing that you know you ought really not to be participating? Do you know how hard that is? Imagine what it's life, what it's like for the entire cosmos, the entire globe, the entire nation, the entire world, everything to have all of those distractions, all of those idols removed and torn down. That's why all of the language of the New Testament about that coming day when finally Jesus is enthroned as king and all other false idols are cast down. That's why the language is always so cataclysmic and apocalyptic. Because it will not be easy. If it's so hard for us to give up chocolate, imagine how hard it is for the whole world to give up the powers and the principalities that set them up against the goodness of God, set themselves up against the goodness of God. So as Jesus is saying, this is what's coming. There will will be a day when all of these things will be cast down, finally eliminated. And that day will be challenging. It will be difficult. Here are a few things that Jesus wants us to hear about that time. The one is, it's not going to happen in secret. There will be not a person who had, somebody has to come along and go, Psst, just letting you know. And he says, if, if people are telling you, no, no, you, over there is Jesus, or over here is Jesus, they're, they're wrong. Because when he shows up, there will be no doubt. That it will be hidden under no basket. Like everything will be out in the open. Every single person, no matter what their religion, no matter what their, everybody will know. So you don't have to have somebody come and telling you, look over here or look over there, because it's going to be obvious. That's the first thing. 
You don't need a secret code. When wars and tumults and earthquake and all of that sort of uh, uneasy, disruptive thing happens, well, Jesus says, yeah, that happens. That happens. We tend to look at an earthquake or a war or something like that and say, oh, is this the one? Well, Jesus says, all that's going to happen, but there's more. In one of my favorite books, so, so what Jesus is talking about here in, in Luke chapter 21 opens the door for the vision that John has in his, in his book at the very end of the scriptures, the, the, the revelation of John. There's so many similar themes there that you, or you do well to turn your attention there. In, in a wonderful book on the revelation of John that Eugene Peterson has written called Reverse Thunder, looking particularly at that section in Revelation 6 where we, we encounter the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You know, we, we've all heard about that, those, that images in our head. There's, there's a rider on a white horse who we're told represents war and a rider on a red horse that represents conquest and a rider on a black horse that represents famine and a rider on a pale horse that represents death. And we have this notion that they're just sort of hanging out waiting till the day that they finally get unleashed and they come towards us But Peterson says, does not that war, conquest, famine, death, doesn't that just describe any tragically ordinary day in a broken and fallen world? Those riders have been riding those horses since the fall. They're here. They're always here. So what are we supposed to do? What kind of people are we supposed to be? As we look towards that day, as the scriptures in these lessons at the end of this season and the beginning of Advent invite us to look up and to see what's coming, what kind of people are we supposed to be? Well, the first thing that Jesus says is that we're supposed to be settled and confident people. We're supposed to not be settled in ourselves, our cleverness, our smarts, our ability to survive, No, we're supposed to be settled and confident in Jesus, whom in his Holy Spirit and through his Holy Spirit in our lives gives us everything we need in order to endure in that season. In addition to being settled and confident, we are supposed to be assured that we are not in any danger, come what may, No matter how cataclysmic and apocalyptic it is when all of those false gods are tossed down and all of those idols are destroyed, no matter how much upheaval that brings, Jesus has us. He holds us and he will provide for us. And what he says to us is that no matter what happens to us, we, not even a hair of our heads, will perish. We cannot perish, even if death comes because we belong to Jesus. There is this great scene in T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral. Now, I'm going to have to lay my cards on the table. Don't think that I sit around reading, you know, poetic plays by T.S. Eliot. Um, It's one of the books that's on our shelves, probably read it in school at some point, but like almost all the books I read while I was in school, I don't remember anything about it. But it's on our shelf, and so just recently, Beth pulled it down off the shelf, and she read it. And we were talking the other day, and she pointed me towards this amazing scene. You know, the, the murder in the cathedral is a, it's a 12th century setting. It's the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket, 
um, who the king is after, wants to get rid of, wants to kill. Um, you know, eventually kills him in the cathedral. It's a, it's a horrible thing. But, but what has happened is Becket has come back to England. The priests around him are, are anxious and worried because they know that the king's men are coming to get Becket. They love the archbishop. They don't want anything bad to happen to him. So they're telling him, you know, you need to go hide in the cloisters. You need to, you need to secure yourself. And this is what Becket says in the midst of this anxiety and this chaos. He says to his fellow priests, he says, peace, be quiet. Remember where you are and remember what is happening. No life is sought here but mine. And I am not in danger. I'm only near death. Isn't that great? I'm not in danger. I'm only near death. Because death, even death, cannot take me from the secure hand of Jesus. And so there is no danger. I am not in danger, only near to death. And so as this year draws to a close, and as the calendar and the lectionary invites us to look up and to think about what is coming, the word that we need to hear is that we need to be settled and confident and assured by the fact that our Lord Jesus holds us in his hand. And it's in that that we find our security, not in the temples or the idols or the gods, the principalities and the powers, those other things that we love more than they ought to be loved, but in Jesus. Jesus says, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, and by endurance there, he means your confident trust in Jesus. Again, if you read Revelation, you see over and over again that the word endurance is used, but what it means is trusting in Jesus. Not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.